Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya, and today we're discussing the seventh episode of the second season of His Dark Materials, Asahetra. And we're also doing a mini wrap-up of the whole second season. This episode was written by Jack the Authority Thorn and directed by Jamie Child. Uh, on this final episode, Lee dies in a shootout with Magisterium soldiers so John Perry can continue on. John, John finds. Perry? Fuck off. John, <laughs> find... <laughs> John finds Will, realizes his son is the knife bearer, and tells him that he must take the knife to Azrael to fight the Authority. The lone remaining soldier interrupts their teary reunion and shoots John, just before John's demon kills him right back. Meanwhile, Mrs. Coulter is killing some witches, abusing the golden monkey, and kidnapping Lyra to keep her safe. Um, so what was everybody's feelings about this, the finale of season two? I was so fucking happy that they fixed my two biggest gripes about the second book, um, which was Will fighting his father for no reason other than to make a bad biblical allusion to Jacob, and, um... John Perry getting killed by his scorned witch lover from the past. Um, So it makes those two decisions um, make the ending of this part of the bigger story a million times better and also incredibly validating that professional TV writers agreed with all of our opinions on (laughs) the parts of book two that sucked the most. I did notice they kept the insect line just to bother you. And also the bit about the Alamo, presumably also just to bother you. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm no longer an aeronaut. We're insects now, traveling the world just like all the others. You couldn't be an insect if you tried, Lee. Says you, rabbit. Remember the games we used to play when we were little? The Alamo. Ha, the Alamo. Taking turns being Danes and French. They're still coming. Um, but yeah, overall, I thought this episode was really great. A uh, perfect ending to the season that we've gotten. So yeah, I loved it. I thought the same. I really, really loved this episode. I feel like at the beginning, it was a little slow. But then as everything got going, and I got like emotionally invested in everyone dying, it was really good. <laughs> I felt Murder. the same. Murder. Even doubt, more killing. No, it, this is great. <laughs> This was an excellent episode. Uh, it set things up perfectly for the next season as well. Like mm-hmm. it felt like there was places to go with it, but it also felt like a good kind of capstone to this. Uh, what was been a very good season overall. I loved it. 
I complained last episode. I felt like, you know, the elements weren't coming together to like, you know, it was a really good episode, but it could have been great. And I feel like that this is what the episode was like. Clearly a lot of energy and time went into making this episode so good. And I think it's honestly one of the best episodes of television I've ever watched, like in anything that I've seen, I think. And, you know, part of that's the serialized story, and we've built up to this moment across two seasons. So I just think it's fabulous. It's really good. So what what was everyone's favorite part of this, what we all seem to agree is a really good episode? So aside from the things that didn't happen uh, that I loved, right? Uh, the things that did happen that I loved, um, the confrontation between the witch and Mrs. Coulter in Chittagatze. I like that the witch actor actually got to do something interesting for like the first time on the mm-hmm. screen. Like you can really see the moment when she realizes that she's fucked and she's, you know, trying to cover for the rest of the group. Mm-hmm. Is Lyra with you? This town isn't safe. You should leave. And a boy, a boy with a knife. How do you know this? How many witches are you? There's only me. I haven't seen a boy or knife. How disappointing. Although that, of course, is not what makes the scene. What makes the scene is the interaction between the golden monkey and the specter from a world building perspective we need to see the specter go for the demon because that's you know important for the world building and the mythology but the way that they executed that with the specter threatening the golden monkey and then mrs coulter cutting it off basically and sending it away that was just like so amazingly well done and then followed up with the scene um, in the basement of the Tower of Angels, where she kicks the golden monkey and actually, mm. like, talks to it. Mm-hmm. You're either with me or against me. Which is it? If you're against me, you're against Lyra. We must prevent the fall. We have to do whatever it takes to keep her safe. It really shows that Mrs. Coulter loves Lyra more than she loves herself to like whatever extent she is capable of love because like when the specter is going after the golden monkey that's when she is thinking about Lyra and kind of like letting that human part of herself exist Um, but she still is just like capable of turning it off and then you know you see that self-loathing later it's all just like so good 
Oh, this this is fascinating what you're saying to me. Like I I have not seen the scene in this way. So I I just want to be clear about what you're saying so I'm, I'm not misunderstanding you. So what you mean is that you feel that as the specter is like getting closer to the monkey, it's her thinking about Lyra and then she kind of snaps that shut and that's why the specter can go away. Yeah, that's how I read that. That is also exactly how I read it. Because cool. she's talking about Lyra and Eve and the fall and yes, how like yeah. she has to protect her and and like you really see Ruth Wilson like lost in thought. Um and that's when the Spectre is like approaching the monkey and like thinking about consuming it. And then yeah, you see her like snap out of it and the Spectre goes away. Mm. That's mm. yeah, uh, that's how I read it. I didn't see it like that, and now I see it like that, it's much, much better. She's Eve. Eve before, before. It's time she must not fall. I'll see to that. For me, it's almost like a scene I feel like in um, Jurassic Park. Which I, I know exactly what you mean. This is so good. No, no, say what you mean. I love it. When um, Grant and the kid are staying still and the yes. T-Rex is right in front of them, it's like yeah. if, you, if, if you move, it'll see you and get you. So if she shows her humanity, it'll see the demon and get it. Mm-hmm. But if she turns that off, it can't see the demon at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she has so much control in that moment that she's even kind of fascinated. It's like when she was walking on the edge of her building in the, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same kind of thing. Like she's playing with that edge, right? She knows how dangerous that specter is and how close it is. She knows she can close that off at any moment and she just does it at the last second. I'll just pick up on um, another thing that Anya said there, which was that um, Mrs. Coulter loves Lyra more than she loves herself. To put that in a slightly different way, when Mrs. Coulter is beating her own monkey up, mm-hmm. her own demon, that's literally just an it's just self-harm yeah Yeah. it's the way that she tortures herself her toxic feelings about herself and it's just a physical manifestation of what people do anyway to themselves Mm -hmm. like in real life i just found that fascinating and excellent yeah i think the tv show has really expanded on what the book was doing and made that demon symbolism and metaphor for self-loathing work even better yeah i agree watching mrs coulter beat up the golden monkey makes me like understand what pullman is doing with the demons here more than like watching lyre and pan cuddle each other that makes so much sense because it is so much easier to beat yourself up than to be Mm -hmm. good to yourself Mm -hmm. i feel like the moments in which you are most aware of like your self-conversation and like being kind of split in a way is when you're doing self-harm and like beating yourself up right because like when you're happy you feel more integrated you feel just more Mm. like a single being and it's like when you're beating yourself up it almost feels like a conversation in a way your normal self-actualization doesn't quite Mm -hmm. like you're right but that is not my experience of life 
It's like, oh. I, I see the, exactly the same thing. I see so much of myself in Mrs. Coulter. It's like so many warning bells. But like she is at her most productive when she is at her most riven. She gets shit done when she is like repressing herself. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. If you, It's quite a hard scene to watch in a manner because it's essentially animal abuse. Yeah. And even though it's not in the story, what we are seeing is a woman beating up a golden monkey. Yeah. We find that distasteful when you see it in that physical form, but people do it to themselves all the time and think nothing of it. Mm -hmm. So I quite like, even if this isn't necessarily intentional, intentional, just drawing a little bit of attention to that, that why is this so bad when there's a physical actualized version of yourself which can feel pain, but you are, you still can feel pain. And you do. That's kind of the point of beating yourself up is for that pain. So, you know, maybe it gives a point just to give a little bit of insight uh, or introspection and go, hey, maybe I shouldn't do that to myself. Maybe that's actually quite nasty. Would I do that to anyone else? No. So why do I do it to me? I'm Like what I said sounded so dysfunctional and bad um, before, but <laughs> my my point was that like a lot of our society lauds that kind of thing, especially like religious society right like what i was talking about before when you use that self-control to repress yourself right like oh i want this yeah. thing that is quote unquote bad and i will deny myself and call myself sinner and feel guilty and bad and then now i'm good now i'm a good person because i have torn myself up inside and repressed penitence is a thing in general right like you you have done a bad by our our philosophical set of ideas and ergo you must punish yourself you mm -hmm. must be punished and you are the person who must do it and it's literally encouraging those horribly self-destructive ideas self purely yeah 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 purely to uh, continue with a structure of power which is kind of pullman's whole point yeah it's just really well characterized in this particular scene of her in a room that is a church like clearly like you know, has an altar and pews and all of that stuff. And this is what's happening in that room. It's showing us, just like you said, animal abuse. It's just showing us this is a bad thing, right? But this is what society tells us is a good thing to do. I didn't even notice or like make the connection of like being in a religious type no, uh, scene when that was happening. But yeah, that's a really good point. Um, So I'm... I had a lot of trouble choosing a favorite part because there's so many uh, that I, I just loved. But I'm going to have to go with the, the ending of Asriel's voiceover because I just think that they did a really good job of, A, surprising us with that. Like, I wasn't spoiled for it. I was it completely blew me away. And it the way that it went over all the different scenes and brought everyone together, I thought was really well done since everybody's literally going... Like, everyone's alone now, doing their own thing. I have struggled through many worlds to arrive here. But you know this. I have sacrificed things. Things I did not want to. My fight is not with you. but you are the last obstacle between me and my enemy. And if I must, I will raise arms again. 
My fight is with the authority and those doling out cruelties in his name. Those who seek to divide in order to control. And who have built worlds founded on privilege and divine right rather than care and need. I fight for freedom of knowledge and in place of deceit, intolerance and prejudice. I fight for the possibilities of understanding, truth and acceptance. But I cannot win these things alone. I will need help and support. From you and all those who have rebelled. Let us be united in heart, soul, and deed. And together we could build a republic of heaven above and a republic of ideas below. Worlds in which the scars of history may be healed. Better worlds where the privilege of freedom becomes the right of all peoples. But I tell you this now. There is no neutral ground. You are either for me or you are against me. Now, which is it? You're not that I know you are. Answer me! Answer me! Asriel. We stand with you, Asriel Balakwa. Good. Then let us prepare for war. Yeah, I got actually like pretty emotional during that voiceover. Yeah, and I, I think. Too. Part of it is that it's just, like, very well-written and well-delivered, and I think also part of it is, is like, watching it at the end of 2020. Um, and, like, I know that Philip Pullman <laughs> wrote this specifically as, like, a screed against the Catholic Church, but I think, I don't know, the way that voiceover was written felt like it applied just as well to the sort of, like evangelical dominionist takeover of the American government that has happened over the past well, 40 years. It's all the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It really is. At its core, it definitely is the same thing. I think there are bits of the book that feel very Catholic specific, like the emphasis on like penance and ritual and hierarchy right. in a way that like isn't as emphasized in the Protestant stuff, but everything that Azrael was saying in the voiceover didn't emphasize that Catholic stuff. It was more just like how religion is used to oppress more generally. Yeah. And yeah, it just, it hit me in the feels in like a fuck 2020 kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> and like the music was great. Yeah. Um, and James McAvoy like acted the shit out of that because you can imagine that he is just standing by himself on a blue screen you know 
He's yeah. so good. Mm. And it was he, amazing. Yeah, he did also, that have, really well. His eyes always been that pretty. Why am I just noticing that? <laughs> no, now? see, the, James McAvoy is a very pretty person. Yeah. He's, you know, like, I still go back and think about when we <clears throat> talked about the first book, and I was like, hey, you know, James McAvoy, too beta, really, for me. For But every time, <laughs> every time, man, I'm like, Jesus, he is alpha in the shit out of this. Like, he's a really good actor. Yeah. I um, also, I loved the, sorry, uh, kind of, that whole speech reminded me so much of Aragorn in uh, the third Lord of the Rings well, book and film, where he's uh, talking to the King of the Dead, and he's saying, I am Isil Dozer, fight for me, and I will hold your oaths fulfilled. What yeah. say you? And yeah. it's very much that same sort of, you're with me, or I crush you. I can help you, we can all help each other, or I crush you. I feel like Tolkien would hate what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Tolkien isn't alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. It's just I I would never would have made that connection. That's cool. Since I just re-listened to our talk about the book chapters, I feel like I should point out that we also made jokes about authors' corpses in that episode. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but the the interesting thing about what you're saying there of the whole if you're not for me, you're against me is that and I thought of Caitlin during that whole thing is that it is the exact same line that Mrs. Coulter says in Anya's favorite part to the monkey yeah. and how Asriel and Mrs. Coulter are like the same person, but are never mm. characterized in the same terms. Like Asriel is very heroic. He's calling angels out being like, don't sit on the sidelines. And like, it feels epic and big. And what Mrs. Coulter does feels like, very bad and evil and self-harmy and but they're the same thing you know like literally the same thing is happening there it's my way or the highway is like the parents line in this in this story about children <laughs> growing up and coming into their own and it, it's like there's something there that's fabulous he's a piece of shit as well like totally. we, all, we do forget <laughs> it sometimes but he really is a piece of work yeah what i love about the books is everybody else forgets it but Lyra never does. You know, she's always like, he killed my best friend. Fuck Ezreal. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in a season where we complained a lot about voiceovers, this is how you do voiceover, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Because it wasn't it wasn't a prologue. It wasn't giving us information we already had. That was it didn't have that point. It's It had an emotional point mm -hmm. and it had like a, mm. a putting a cap on it. You know, like this is the end. We're going to just have this really emotional moment, bring everyone together, including like you get a look at the people who've died and yeah. you get a look at Yorick, which was great. Yeah. Yeah. And they like they chose, I think, the the different scenes where they're cutting to all the different characters and the specific words of the voiceover very, very well. Yeah. Um, yeah, very well. Like, I didn't write down specific notes about what they were, but if you go back and watch those choices, like, they are specifically matching, you know, certain words to to specific characters that have to do with their journey. And, yeah, it just, it wasn't a voiceover about exposition, which are always bad. Right. Yeah. Like, not, not just in this show. Whenever a voiceover is doing exposition, it does not work. Yeah. You're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> All right. My favorite part is and mine is so different than everyone else's. Um, I really love that Lee makes his last stand, but I feel like in the book, uh, he 
takes everyone out. I I didn't reread the book this time. Um, yeah, he does. Okay. Um, because we had the witch to kill John Perry, so we didn't need the magisterium guy to do it. Hmm. So this is so interesting to me because it kind of changes a lot of shades of things, including Asriel's speech, what Mrs. Coulter's doing, what how John Perry lived his life and what is being asked of the children now. It's like Lee makes this heroic stand. He does it on Lyra's behalf, like explicitly, you know, in the middle of all the shooting. He's like, I don't like taking lives, Hester. It's ours or theirs. There's our Lyra's. And he fails in a sense, you know, like he does. He's awesome and a hero for sure, but he doesn't take everyone out. He does his best and it's not good enough. And the consequences of that are that John uh, Perry dies. You know, Will loses his father. Like, Grumman is telling himself the whole time, like, I'm learning all of this magic and exploring all of these spaces for my family. <laughs> when he's not there for his family, right? And Mrs. Coulter is going to kidnap Lyra because she is Eve. And Azriel abandoned his daughter because he has to like confront the authority and save the world. There's like all these narratives that these people are telling themselves to like, I have this job to do to that justifies this action that is not even being accomplished by the actions that I'm taking. I don't know. It's just Lee failing in there just adds a shade to every other narrative that doesn't happen in the book that I find fascinating. Like it just shifts everything a little bit. It's not just that it, it makes that plot possibility, you know, that you're talking about where it's a magisterium, you know, like gunner instead of a witch. And so it kind of like fixes that it does that. But like, I feel like thematically it shifts everything a lot more than it, than if we stuck to the book. So I love that. Okay, I have a question for you on a related idea then. Because when I was watching that, I also saw something in the fact that Lee sacrifices himself for Grumman, and then Grumman immediately sacrifices himself for his son. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it felt almost like kind of paying it forward in a way. Um mm. If you felt like that, that echo there. I mean, Lee is dying for Lyra in his yeah. mind. You know, he's dying for his kid and Grumman is dying for, I mean, John Perry is dying for spoilers. It's John Perry is his father, uh, yeah. is dying <laughs> for, for his kid. You that know. is confirmed in this episode. It's it okay is. Now. When did that happen? Um, oh my God, it was confirmed long, <laughs> long ago. Okay. Did you know that Will's dad played Moriarty on Sherlock? Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. No, I think there is an explicit connection there. You know, he sees Lyra. That's if he could have a daughter, it would be Lyra, and and he dies for her, and Grumman dies for his child. You compare that to Mrs. Coulter or Azriel, who like abandoned his child for her own good in his mind and then kidnapped her child for her own good in her mind, you know? <clears throat> so I think there's something heroic versus villainy going on, you know, like our 
So it sounds like your favorite part was the whole fucking episode. I mean, it's really good, but I, I feel like that <laughs> moment links to every other to every other moment. You know that that we put failure there instead of success is mm-hmm. fascinating to me with the relationship that failure has had in this season. It's interesting because I I suspect their motivation for that was money because in the book he blows up one of the zeppelins. And yeah, kills yeah, them yeah, all yeah. that way. And obviously yeah. they didn't want to do a big ass explosion like that. And these guys were like, oh, I've been hit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. The same how, time multiple times. Yeah. 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 <laughs> how different motivations can produce good results. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Uh, my favorite bit was exactly the same thing. So I don't actually have anything to add. Alan just oh, said what I'm I was going to say, but better. No, no. <laughs> you just saw more of the stuff that made it good for me. Sorry, did he get shot in the ankle in the book? I don't think he did. No. Oh. So that th- this is a reference to something that I wrote in the doc, and I wanted to ask people what you thought about Lee getting shot in the ankle first, because I think it makes his decision to stay and kind of like sacrifice himself a little bit less meaningful, um, because... In the book, they both, in theory, could have run together, or John Perry could have stayed and Lee could have run ahead um, to try and, like, pass the word on. But in the TV show, you know, he got shot and was limping, so he was basically immobile, you know, like, he wouldn't have been able to try and outrun them. They couldn't have swapped places. So he I can't think make it ma- a choice. It made a choice. Yeah, it's yeah. it's less of a choice there and more. Yeah. I mean, he's he is, you know, using his skills and going out in a brave way. But it's, you know, he was cut off from other options that he wasn't cut off from in the book. Mm, it definitely. didn't bother me because it, they still showed him able to move and walk. Mm-hmm. You know, kind it wasn't of. it wasn't like he couldn't have tried. I don't yeah. know. It didn't bother me. In fact, I thought getting shot in the ankle was stupid and useless because they still because <laughs> show- if you actually had a bullet in your ankle, you could not move the way he was moving. Your pain would be huge. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm being a little bit passive aggressive about this. This is basically me complaining. Like, I feel like they should have. <laughs> Had it, like, grazed his thigh or something, you know? Yeah, no, agreed, because that's how they used it. Yeah, Mm. but, like, having him get shot in the ankle, I feel like it just, it doesn't work. It makes his choice less meaningful, and I wish they hadn't done it. Maybe that should have, I should have put that as my least favorite part. Um, Oh, (laughs) wait, we haven't done that yet, even though it's been, like, half an hour. (laughs) It's not too late. Well, should we use that as the transition into our least favorite part? Least favorite parts. <laughs> I didn't have this written down, but I guess my least favorite part is Lee getting shot in the ankle because <laughs> it's the only bad part in what would otherwise be a perfect scene. Um, Great. But what I what I actually did write down was just that the witch cold open, like they're getting kind of cliche at this point. I think over half the episodes of the season have opened that way. Um mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't terrible, terrible, but the rest of the episode was so good, so it still stands out as the worst part. Yeah. Mine is also witches-related. Surprise, surprise. Um, I despised the scene with Fruta and the cliff guests. Which for... is the same scene I'm talking about, I think. I'm pretty sure that was the cold open. Yeah, that's the end of the cold open, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I specifically Ruta and the cliff guests because... <sighs> 
A, in the first season, which we talked about a lot, they made it so that nothing can kill the witches. <laughs> you know, when, when <laughs> Serafina went right. into Balvanger and just murdered everyone super quick, Ruta could have done that to the cliff guests. So she was never in danger, although we were obviously supposed to think she was. We were supposed to feel that she was. So that's just dumb. Like, that's just, that's just consequences of bad writing from last season. And B, like, we don't need that scene. We know what Isahetra is already. In the book, we didn't know what it was when we had that scene. And, and it mm. was later when we put it all together that she was actually looking for the knife when she abandoned the knife. And it was interesting because nope, because everybody was underestimating these kids and thinking right. that they weren't. Like, the witches knew that Lyra was important, but what it showed was that there's the prophecy and the witches want to do that, but they still have no fucking idea what's going on. And it was interesting. And this scene just did nothing. It was also weird, the, like, kind of language that they're speaking, that they made that choice, too, was, like, really weird to me. It was just growls. Yeah. TV show Ruta is still way better than book Ruta. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, actually, I wanted to ask you about that, Caitlin. Like, I mean, I know the witch scenes have been some of our least favorite throughout the season, but as a character, like, I thought Ruta was actually fine, which is awesome. And I just wanted to get your take on that overall. I mean, I can never like her because I know her roots. You know, and good, good, and good. anytime she took stuff that Serafina did, I just felt resentful. Like it, it's too, she's too wrapped up in how much I hate her in the books. I I cannot have uh, um, I see. an opinion about her an in the impartial, TV show. yeah, just exactly. TV show opinion. It's yeah. like impossible to separate them. It did also feel kind of weird when she went to when she just came back and the whole meeting the angels and going to see Astral thing. Like I know that was meant to be another episode. Mm-hmm. But they didn't, like, show... Like, that is still a really impactful scene when she meets the angels. It tells you a lot about Ruta. It tells you a lot about the angels. And it it, it just wasn't there. She's just like, oh, yeah, I want to see Asriel, by the way. And, um, yeah, he said this, this, and this. And then exposition dump. And you go, well, you could have at least shown something about that. <laughs> like, the real point of her finding out about this in, in terms of the plot is for Serafina to lie to her. Because she's like, we got to find this thing because now Asriel is our boss. And Serafina's like, never heard of it. You should go find it because I don't know where it is. It's not right here, you know, <laughs> with us right this second. You should go somewhere well, else and find it. Knife. Yeah. Well, she doesn't know the knife is called Esahetra, does she? She gets a look on her face while she's describing like what this Esahetra is and like what it can do. And uh. she's like, oh, and she's like, yeah, you should go find that somewhere else. And she's like, I will. Goodbye, my sister. And she's like, thank God. Thank God she fell for it. There was something else. As I was traveling, I came across some cliff ghasts. They spoke of the Asahedra. Something that would be the difference between winning and losing. I'm not sure where to begin, but go. Find Asriel this Asahetra. 
make his fight yours. She's gone. To Azrael. And, and again, I do really wish we'd gotten the scene where Ruta meets the angels. I think that would have been a good way to introduce the fact that they're going to check out Azrael, like, and also introduce that they're going to be characters in the story and not just mm -hmm. these yeah. omniscient, yeah, you know, things through the cave or the alethiometer or whatever. Um, but I I understand. You know, COVID fucked it up. Mm -hmm. It's it, it sucks, so. but I, I'm not upset about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My least favorite part was the witch death, which I just found. Wait, which one? Eh. The, the, the one witch... that I loved. Mm-hmm. That one. <laughs> I love the the bits about it that you loved. I loved the betrayal. The overall thing sucked, in my opinion, and I the reason it sucked for me was that I didn't understand really why why I keep wanting to say Ruta, that is her name, but Coulter, why Coulter is there. So when that threw me off, then we already had one random suddenly uh Ru Christ. Suddenly it's Mrs. Coulter Ruta is... is so close to Ruth. Mm. Yes, yes. And name, because right? Seraphine is played by Ruta as well, which yeah. just means but yes. Um so that fell off for me already. So I was already a bit like, what? what is this? And then combine that with... And then another witch turns up in exactly the same place. The one house in this entire bloody city. She turns up there. <laughs> and then she's naive enough to not go, whoa, why are you here? Like, she knows the people here don't have demons. I'm sure that's addressed prior. There's just no critical thinking. Like, yeah, she's earnest. I would say to the point of being naive. Like, And also she can turn into into like ghostliness and fly away why wasn't she at least positioning yeah. herself to vaguely be able to do that that's like, the real problem even if i'm it her her reactions don't make sense to me and so she dies for it and that makes the death list impactful because it feels like it could be easily avoided mm -hmm. like by following what happens in the book which is like carefully calibrated to trap the witch yes exactly and also just after she kills boreal as well so you see that miss culture has just gone on a killing spree essentially and in here it just doesn't quite feel like that like i know they are normally the same point but they're shown in the same scene in the book mm -hmm. yeah i see so your main problem with the scene is just that the witch is too dumb and yeah yeah it makes that the witch that makes you question everything because it's like even though what's there is like good it doesn't feel believable on some level yeah i feel like it does a disservice to the witches and to their characters by making them relatively consistently wander into really simple traps and you look at it you're going well if they had an ounce of sense they wouldn't have done that in the first place or they wouldn't have gone alone or anything like that like you can there are very simple ways to get around these problems and it all seems to be they just stumble in by not thinking okay i will buy that but i am going to push back a little bit on like the coincidence of mrs coulter finding the house where Lyra and Will were staying because like I don't know the city doesn't look actually that big and I liked that they were kind of reusing that set and having Mrs. Coulter actually retrace Lyra's steps a bit more 
because to me it felt the world feel more real. You know, in the book we don't get any of that because we're not following Mrs. Coulter nearly this much. And so she just Mm. kind of shows up and we don't have to have a reason for knowing why she's there or how she's tracked Lyra. And so it somehow works to show her like actually tracking Lyra down and like confirming like, okay, yes, she is in this world. Now I have to go find her. I I do agree that it definitely serves a story point. I just didn't like it. Okay. I like the okay. I will say, I'm, I was kind of meh about that scene. Like I didn't hate it or or like particularly like it. It was fine. What I did like in that scene is when the specter is approaching the two demons and the monkey just holds up the witch's demon by the neck. <laughs> yeah, I thought I that, like was that. that was really fabulous. Funny. And then the, the specter just like consuming it. That was really good. Mm. I liked seeing that. Oh, absolutely. And how Mrs. Coulter is making the witch watch. Yeah. Uh, that, that bit was I liked. Yeah. But I, like, I see, I see cool. what you're saying. Because also, like, if you're a group of witches, adult women, in a, in a world where you've just discovered that these things can kill you and there's nothing you can do about it, and you know that there's a shit ton of them back in the city. And then somebody's like, oh, there's a lady there. You're like, well, too fucking bad for her. Moving on. Yeah, like- <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Though I did, I must say, in that scene, I loved the sound design of the Spectres. Yes. The fact that you could just, you it was incredibly visceral. It was very kind of foreboding quite unnatural and all of those things really gave a sense of menace to these things which if you didn't have that and you just had the look of them it wouldn't have any of that menace yeah it was very well done stop whimpering They are cool. My least favorite part is just a weird thing that happens in the episode. I think it's the right emotional choice. I think it's visually like epic and interesting. Uh, it's just when Will is cradling his father's, you know, dying body and crying and I'm crying. And then we like are zooming out over the jungle and he is on a cliff edge. And I'm like, how did he get there? It looked like he walked right over. What? When did that? Why? So like, it just threw me out every time. I don't even think it's bad. I just think it's like, it's just how my brain works. I was like, I don't understand. How did he walk there? I agree. Like there might've been another tunnel through the cliffs. I don't know if tunnel is the word I'm looking for, whatever, coming from the side. But even if there was, he was definitely like storming away from his father towards the cliff edge. Like during that scene, and mm, and yeah. you can't see the cliff edge until you pull out. And you're like, where was he planning to go? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah, it it, it definitely pulled me out every time. Also, and being like, wait, that doesn't make sense with the blocking <laughs> that they had in that scene. Why have they made this choice? It it is very strange. Yeah, it just it, it it reframes everything that happened before in a way that I don't think they want it to. It plays in that moment perfectly. Like that is how it feels. When someone dies, you know, but like a nitpick because I really love this episode. So I tried to pick something that's dumb. All right. We've got a problematic this week, I see. 
Mm, yeah, I just noticed that um, the two sidekick witches who actually get named, I didn't go back and look up their names. Um, but at least they have names, I guess. They're women of color. I think their performances are really good in um, both of their death scenes. The problem that I had was that they have death scenes, uh, which mainly serve to raise the stakes for the white characters, which is like a horror trope that is... I mean, is really old at this point and has been complained about a lot. And so th I feel like the plot is indulging in that. It's not so bad, though, because we do have people in the cast who are main characters, important characters like Amir Wilson, you know, uh, Daphne Keene and um, Jade Anuka, you know, who's playing Ruta, who, like, you know, people of mixed race heritage or people of color. And so and their main characters. So like this mitigates it a lot, but like. It is a trope that maybe we should not do that. Yeah, I agree. I had the same thought. At least we're not seeing colorism, which is also very common in TV and movies where the two uh, witches of color who die are much lighter skinned than um, Jada Nuka as Ruta who survives. So it, at least there's that. But also like, I don't know. I mean, like, I know Daphne Keene, uh, her mom is Spanish, and she has, like, some Arab Moorish heritage going way back. But I do, f I mean, like, whiteness is socially constructed, and, and like, ch definitions change over time. I feel like I'm uncomfortable using Daphne Keene as an example of diversity, because I think she's probably read by casting directors and most viewers, like, as white. I don't know. I will say because of, well, the pretty good job that they've done with, with uh, casting, I didn't notice it as much. But yeah, it does suck. Um, so before we move away from our like specific topics too far, I did want to say this wasn't my least favorite scene or, or anything like that because I thought Lee's actual death was fabulous. And especially the second time I watched it, I don't know why it hit me harder the second time. I cried a lot. But I really fucking hate that they didn't have Hester curl up on him. Mm. Like, I get the budgetary concerns and how it's easier, but that she they weren't even touching when they died was some bullshit. Yeah. I just wanted to put that out there. The, the, other than that, that scene was, was fabulous in a mm. heartbreaking way. It was. It really was. As far as Lee's death goes, I'd be curious to ask non-book readers how surprised they were by it because i don't know i think he felt more protected to me as a character than either john perry or lord boreal did mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i feel like maybe aside from roger lee's death would have been one of the more surprising ones so far I did pay attention to Mrs. Coulter's outfit this time, and it is very stylish and fun. But when I see that style of outfit, like, all I can think of is is just, like, she looks like a colonizer. Yeah, it's 100%. Oh, yeah. 100%. The Jungle Cruise ride at Disneyland yes. is the same. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. That's, I think I just, like... It's turn-of-the-century explorer. Yeah. Yeah, like, when you were ex describing it, you were using words that, like, had that implication, but because you didn't specifically yeah, say yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I, like, 
didn't connect it in my head because I didn't have the mental image. Um, And I think the Magisterium soldiers definitely give that vibe too. Um, So yeah, just like lots of colonialist imagery um, that I think is absolutely on purpose. Like you already pointed out last time, I'm just catching up um, and wanted to say that you were right. It's it's good to point it out uh, blatantly without me just making disneyland jokes but that that is what i was getting at yeah yeah i do not get it from the soldiers at all i very their whole style and the way that they're made up is much more world war ii they're using m1 garands they're using those sort of um steel helmets kind of again a bit like the german style they're, they're much more covering than the um british or american styles from world war ii but that same sort of coloring the weapons they're using this is all very much more world war ii than it is colonial era lee is using a repeating carbine which is if not directly modeled on then certainly alluding to the winchester yeah, um I which that. is a classic a classic rifle from um like colonial times uh spreading west there was mm-hmm. a lot of thing and that was one thing that was uh sold you know, traded to some of the tribes that they were looking to conquer both physically and also culturally. And they would trade them because they're easy to use from horseback because they're really short. Right. Okay, yes, I agree with you. The Magisterium soldiers had like a very World War II kind of like Iron Cross vibe. But like the colonialist era lasted for a very long time. And like parts of World War II were fought in tropical areas. And so for me, it was it was like the juxtaposition of World War II era outfits with like a very tropical looking jungle. Like that wasn't just a forest, yeah. mm-hmm. you know? And so it's like being overdressed and like having that kind of like oppressive European military outfit in like what was very a tropical setting still reads as colonialist to me. It feels to me like something you're saying there, Anya, which I would not agree with, is that colonialism ended. Like, oh, <laughs> well, no, that's true. <laughs> um, so, like, I just want to put that out there. Right, right. But I'm just saying, like, it's maybe I misspoke, but I was trying to say actually the opposite of that, that, like, colonialism was not just that explore chic like late 1900s 1890s, late yeah. 1800s yeah, yeah, early yeah. 1900s like yeah it extends into yeah. like the 40s 50s and even today mm-hmm. no I, I agree with that i think possibly they are two different parts of colonialism more generally like the initial expansion versus the repression and the kind of doubling down and consolidating which was much more a hallmark of the 40s and 50s whilst the initial expansion was much more the sort of rich white explorer in the middle of the jungle yeah yeah yeah. that's what um i I could only call her ruta she's not ruta she is miss coulter That is what Mrs. Coulter looks like. She looks like that turn of the century versus the troops who look very much more like that consolidation of power in the kind of mid-1900s. Yes. 100% agree. Yeah. While we're on Mrs. Coulter, I just want to throw in that it's so horrifically unnecessary, but I loved her, like, power shot, you know, at the top of the tower. At the angels? Yeah. With the specters. Oh, Oh, fuck, yeah. That was so cool. Like, it added nothing except enjoyment, (laughs) and I am here for it. It was good. 
So I, I don't really have a religion thing, but I did want to talk about existentialism because I think the way that they're using the demons in this episode is very like existential. It's almost like these books are your your baby existentialism introduction. Yeah. You know, yeah. like you're not quite ready for... Baby's first existentialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what yeah. I was going for. Thank you. You're not quite ready for Charte or whatever his name is, but um, soon. I love it, yeah. No, I think that's right. It's... um. If you don't know anything about existentialism, you could like you would read these books and then go on to like read Simone de Beauvoir and stuff like that and be like, this this seems familiar for some reason. I don't know what's going on. But yeah, you have all of these characters who are speaking to their demons, which is really just them talking to themselves. And we've talked about how good they've been about this season with doing that and how that is the way to use the demons. Right. Yeah. Yeah. you already alluded to Anya how the end of the second book got very biblical very fast and feels like weird right mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I feel like the show swerves so hard from that into this more philosophical territory to explain to people like what existentialism is because I don't think that this at least in America it's not taught at all um, it's part of like scary postmodernism. Uh, which is clearly a bad thing and should be uh, exterminated. Existentialism kind of has one rule for it's a, phil- a philosophical model that only, you know, like in terms of uh, ethics, it doesn't have like a system of like lying is bad and, and things like that. It just really has one rule. And that is you don't talk about Fight Club. No, that's different. <laughs> um you uh, you have to authentically be yourself and listen to your conscience and like be aware of when you are lying to yourself and don't do it. Don't indulge in that. Um, you have to have like moral integrity is what it's all about and not in the sense of like, I follow these rules and my code of ethics, like, you know, down to the letter. It's listening to this core of yourself that knows like what I'm doing right now is bullshit or I don't really trust this person that I'm dealing with, but I'm acting like I trust them because they haven't done anything yet to like, you know what I mean? Like you get a feeling, but you don't go with that feeling. That's not existentialism. That's the opposite of existentialism. You're like not going with your gut. And to a lot of people, that's scary um, in terms of like, you know, structures of authority because Then they're like, well, what if your gut tells you to murder everyone or to like constantly have sex with people you're not married to and things like that? What what would happen to society if we lived that way? Like, clearly, we would all rob each other and murder each other and just sex each other to death. That would be the worst. And like, you know, maybe you're telling on yourself, person in authority. I was going to say that exact thing. Like, I find it so interesting how so many religious people are like, but without God, we would just murder people. I'm like, I've actually never believed in God. He's never been a part of my life. And I have (laughs) never wanted to genuinely murder someone. Like, never in my life has that been a thought that crossed my mind in a genuine manner. There have been people that I've thought, oh, the world would be better off if they died. Like, well, I'm sure we can all think of some political examples um but i would never like it's never even i fucking hate that argument so much like fuck off sorry yeah and it doesn't seem like the impulse that just springs from you in a situation right it's like constructed out of a lot of other you know points of pressure when 
murder happens. And it, it usually has a lot more to do with repression and not working things out. That's existentialism. The one rule is listen to Jiminy Cricket and do what that motherfucker says. I'd be okay with worshiping Jiminy Cricket. But, um... <laughs> but <clears throat> so if you have that in mind, think about these interactions that we see between Pan and Lyra, right? With Pan talking to Will, with Mrs. Coulter. Now I want to call her Ruta. What the fuck, Francis? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> with Mrs. Coulter and the Golden Monkey, uh, you know, that is like an example of repressing what is deep down inside of you, that little voice telling you, do this, don't do that. Um, like, what exactly is the monkey not on board for when she's like, oh, she's Eve. I have to stop the fall. I have to, you know, and the monkey's like, not signing up for this. This is bad. Like, what is that about? And, you know, what what is that part of Mrs. Coulter saying to her that she is saying no to. Now, my read is mostly book-based, and to be fair, they are. Uh, they could be doing something completely different in the show, but taking that scene with an understanding of the character in the book, I've always thought that the monkey represents the evil parts of Mrs. Coulter, I guess. Mm. And, like, like the monkey is her, so it's hard to say, like, there's a wall, you know, because or, like, a line in the sand. The monkey's evil, the body is not. Like, that's not quite what I'm saying, but... I sort of read that as the monkey being like, this is not our problem. You know, oh, like, fuck it. And oh. and um, Mrs. Coulter saying, no, this is our goddamn problem. Because maybe this is me thinking more about book three. But in book three, she she does struggle to do good things. Maybe or bad things for good reasons or something mm -hmm. like that. Like, And she really struggles with it. And she never quite knows what side she's on, except mm -hmm. that she wants to help Lyra. And so that's how I read this. Interesting. I can see how you pulled that out of this scene in the TV show. Mm -hmm. But I feel like in the entire rest of this, the show, the monkey has more been representing Miss Coulter's more vulnerable and like better parts, actually. Yeah. And I see her mistreatment of the monkey as like suppressing the good and compassionate parts of herself. So I didn't pull that out of the scene just because I think it contradicts everything else that we've seen so far. So I kind of want to go back and rewatch that and see if there's a different interpretation. I kind of agree with you there. Absolutely. But why would the monkey then not want to help Lyra? Like if because I believe Mrs. Coulter thinks that she, that keeping Lyra away from everything like kidnapping Lyra the way she does. I think she genuinely believes that is helping her. I think she's thinking, I'm going to keep her safe from all that. I would say the monkey in the book, I think you're completely right about this. And it's actually what we just talked about, right? Where the monkey in the book is like, she is repressing the truth of what she is in every situation. And the monkey like can't help but exhibit what that is and so she has like a smile on her face and is sweet as sugar and then the the monkey is like murder right yeah looking exactly. at you yeah yeah i there's a specific like this doesn't really spoil anything plot wise so i'm gonna say it now but there's a specific scene in book three where like mrs coulter is just sitting around looking like a normal person and the monkey catches a bat out of the air and then breaks its wings 
and then like just tortures <laughs> this monk uh bat did i say bat yeah yeah and just tortures this bat to death mm-hmm. you know and and that's while mrs coulter has has lyra in her keeping and is like trying mm-hmm. to keep her safe so that I guess is where I'm coming at from the monkey and from that um, situation. Yeah, and it's mm-hmm. it's exactly what we just talked about, where it's like the religious person who's saying like we can't be existentialists because then you would just murder everyone, and it'd be like, what's in your heart, there, person who is saying that? Who <laughs> you know, like that's what's inside of her, right? In yeah. in the books, like literally. It's just trying to get out and she is controlling herself so that she can exist in society and kind of satiate those uh, appetites to the degree that she can exist at all. You know Um, that. Yeah, I definitely think that's how the golden monkey operates in the book. I don't read it that way in the show. I think it's used to like show vulnerability on her part. And especially like we talked about the animal abuse, you know, of that situation and stuff. I mean, the monkey still does commit violent acts sometimes right like in season one where um it pinned pan into submission in a pretty painful way in this episode when it offered the the witch's demon up to the specter oh yeah yeah (laughs) but i feel like in the tv show whenever yeah whenever the monkey is being bad it feels like the monkey and mrs coulter are on the same page and when they are divided the monkey is the more vulnerable, more human, compassionate part of her. I don't know. Like, these are my own personal associations. So I think I'm projecting some stuff onto this. But, like, she kneels down on the floor and she's reaching out to the monkey. And it is, like, very wary of this show of, like, acceptance and affection. You know, Yeah, it doesn't believe her. Right. And it literally just got kicked across the room, which is why it needs to cross the space back to her (laughs) invitation of, like, love and and uh, kindness and stuff and so like i i don't know i've i've been in that situation as a child being reached out to by a parent of like who just like beat you up and is like now this is how abusers work they like they hurt you and then they're like okay now i love you and now you need to like forgive me and accept me and yeah yeah like everything needs to be cool now and so for me it's like the monkey is seeing that like you are going to do to her what you're doing to me and I don't want that for her. Like I love Lyra too in a way of like I understand what you are and what you will you will do to her what you're doing to me and I don't want that. And so she's Ooh. saying like be with me or you are against me in those you know in that way. So that's how I read the the monkey's like schism in the scene i guess i just like the monkey better in the books because it exists just as this evil terrifying thing yeah you know it's a demon literally yeah 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 and that's how i continue to read him just because i like it is that just because um mrs coulter is a psychopath yeah and so her demon is also There, there are plenty of people who have mental health issues which cause great pain and harm but not to anybody else but them yeah Yeah. and that's the majority of people with mental health issues yeah coming from someone with mental health issues here yeah Yeah. (laughs) um i so to zoom back out on this whole 
the main point I'm making with Mrs. Coulter here is that she's definitely not listening to herself, you know, like in an existential sense. And I, I think that contrasts with like the conversation that Lyra has with Pan, where they're talking about, you know, that she feels that she's changing and that means that Pan will stop changing. I loved that scene a oh, lot. It's so good. It was so good. I think I'm changing, Pan. I like you just as you are. Once I change, you'll stop changing. What do you think you'll be? A flea, I hope. Is it Will that's changing you? Yeah. I don't think I'm ready for things to change. I don't think anyone ever is. And a good example of a way to have demon exposition on awkwardly. Right. Mm-hmm. We're getting the world building there of like, yeah. it's, yeah, you're going to settle into a particular form. And they do that sardonically, humorously of like, I hope I'll be a flea. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and we got Red Panda Pan one last time. <laughs> which did. I assume we won't get at all next season and I'm already sad and I love him so much and I just want to pet him and hug him. Sorry, carry on. (laughs) I also really enjoyed um, their discussion about change and Pan saying, I'm not ready for change and Lyra kind of saying, well, it kind of doesn't matter if you're ready for it. Yes. No one's ready for change. Which is a huge part of existentialism. And and a huge part of growing up. Which is what these books are about. Ah, There's like all this fear and there's all this like, I'm not going to fit in. And there's and you have to take responsibility for all the things that happen to you, even if they're not fair. This is a huge part of existentialism. And even if they're like unfortunate and they're set against you, because by taking responsibility for them and like making them a part of your identity, that is you're allowing yourself to fully exist in the truth and then you can make authentic decisions about who you are given this information like even though you can't control that your father was just murdered by a random nazi who appeared in the background you like have to decide am i really the knife bearer do i have to take up his mantle do i have to do all these things that i've been told are my identity Like, is that true about me? Everything that everybody is telling me I am? Or am I, you know, some other thing that like, am I the person who makes Lyra stronger and who allows Lyra to make me stronger and is my best friend? You know, am I her best friend and I care about her the most? Or do I care about my father's legacy the most? You know, when it comes to Will, the conversations that he's having about his existentialism with Pan. Bad dream. I'm frightened. I saw my father and I was scared. She can't see the fear. Your fear. Can't she? She thinks you're the bravest fighter she's ever seen. As brave as Yorick Bernison, king of the armored bears. Person. That's a compliment. And I think Lyra's is even braver than me. She can be. But sometimes she's not. She's the best friend I ever had. You know that. 
Look, I've had many friends. You are her best friend too. Now sleep. Maybe you'll feel better in the morning. You know, who is he? His identity that, uh, that he's constructing revolves around relationships with Lyra and, you know, between them. The way that he, the authority of the grownups is operating, like Lyra wants to let Serafina kind of take control of things. But she realizes in this episode, especially talking to Pan, we can't do that. Like, we have to protect the grown-ups. We're the only ones who can do this in this world. Spectres could hurt her. She's not safe. Everything's a risk, Lyra. Haven't you learned that by now? No. What I've learned is that we make mistakes. I don't want to make a mistake with either of these people. And that is like taking responsibility for who you are and then making choices. And, you know, those choices might turn out to be failure like they are for Lee. But you've like fully embodied who you want to be and, and trying to be who you are, as opposed to repressing yourself, like, say, Lord Asriel, who is like, I'm not your father. I'm the world's hero and I command angels to appear before me and do my will and uh, it's it's not my fault that global warming's happening back on my world. I I opened a portal to bring light to people's eyes, and uh, I'm not responsible for my actions. I am saving the universe. You guys, come on. May I say when you brought up that scene where Will is talking to Pan about yeah. who he is, and that like I really liked how they did that scene here. It was very good, but the way that you just said it of I realized, and this isn't the only scene where it happens that Will is using pan and pan is perfectly willing to do this as his own demon yeah and i just love that i love that realization that's such a good character moment for both will and lyra slash pan that's really good it feels so intimate and i think they've really built up yeah they've they've earned that i feel like yeah and and i really love how afterwards when pan goes back to lyra how she's very clearly wide awake and yeah, it, I love that. It gives this idea that she sent Pan over there and was like, mm, we'll need somebody mm. to talk to. Could you? Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So I, I, just the main thing here that is happening, I just want to be clear, is like, you know, existentialism kind of ground rules. Be authentically yourself. Take responsibility for everything about your life, even the things that aren't fair. And then, you know, intentionally be who you are and be honest with yourself about what your conscience is telling you and do your best to do that. Argue with anything else, but don't argue with your true nature. And it's very hard. It is the hardest way to live your life. It's so funny because like, this is the thing in postmodernism that people are like, this is bullshit. This is just an excuse to do whatever you want. It's like, if you actually do this, it is so hard to live this way. But it's like the best way to live, I think. It's just like impossibly difficult, though. And it, it's, yeah, you, you live your life in a way where you will fully, like, feel everything and, you know, all the good, all the joy, but also all the loss 
And that is where these books live, like when they're at their best. And this episode is like, that's where this episode lives. So I just think it was fabulously done in terms of like, it turned away from the biblical illusions and leaned hard into this stuff and did a great job doing it. So while we're kind of in the religion slash philosophy section, um, there isn't one point that I wanted to bring up about the idea of Lyra as Eve, um, which is basically just that it makes so much more sense to me in the TV show than it did in the book because of the way that they kind of like juxtapose Mrs. Coulter talking about Eve and the fall um, with Serafina talking about the end of destiny and the return of free will, like Mm. right after each other. And how they're, those two things are basically different interpretations of the same thing or like the same prophecy from two very different moral perspectives. I disagree with what you're saying, but I can't talk about it outside of the spoilers. Okay. So we'll talk about it there. Okay. It's funny because I was like, there's not really a lot of uh, religion in this episode, but like you, like you pointing out is very, uh, is very much the thing and how those are juxtaposed right next to each other and make really clear like these are the good guys these and this is what the bad guys think i think the i think the what you thought in the book is exactly what philip pullman wants you to think when i see like he wants us to be confused yeah well he he wants you to have the idea that you've always heard about eve and the magisterium and eve and sin and all of that you know like eve is bad right and that that whole situation Mm -hmm. was bad and so like to call lyra that is like whoa what what does that mean I see. Okay. I never felt that way, but maybe that's just because of my completely unreligious upbringing. <laughs> because all, because Eve to me was never somebody bad. It was just a story, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I never really thought of Eve as bad, but I am aware that, like, that's how a lot of other people interpret her. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've heard people say that like a big part of the reason why the fall happened was because she wasn't living correctly under the dominion of her husband. The first real sin was that she failed to obey her husband and that led to her disobeying God. Like, I think that is like some really toxic, terrible stuff, to be clear. (laughs) But that is like the (laughs) kinds of things that you hear about Eve, right? That she... And that are built into women and and are part of the reason why, you know, we should be very suspicious of women and why women need to control themselves and all of the stuff that has been a big part of this season, you know, and the way that Mrs. Coulter has been treated and, and explains a lot of like her circumstances, you know, that gives tragedy to her bad choices. And, you know, she's like trying to save her daughter from that in a certain sense, like, She's she's got some very bad views. I like I feel bad for Coulter in the show in a lot of ways. I don't know. No, so do no, I. Definitely. They've they've really changed her from well, I really loved her in the books too, but for different reasons. They're really using her to show how fucked up it is in, in their world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how that made her. Well, in the book, I feel like she was more she was born an evil person. Mm-hmm. And as the story went on, she discovered other things were important to her also, which didn't stop her from being evil, which was important. But yeah, so, and it that, that was her a, in the, another appetite. Yeah. yeah. And in the show, they've decided to use her in a different way, still very good and very evil and that sort of thing. But that the world is just a lot more complicated. 
yeah, she's more, more tragic. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose I've always liked her as this sort of epitome of evil because it's fun. But it I really, <laughs> I do also really love what they're doing with her in the show. Uh, so did we want to get into our whatever we haven't talked about yet? You know, our, um, our yeah, I've got a few things. So Mary and the babes. <laughs> oh yes, Mary and the babies. Um, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, how did we feel about Mary? helping the kids because that's not in the show in the book at all i like yeah because they're all dead in the show because will and lyra killed them well, I don't. <laughs> and the witches too anyways um <laughs> i don't think they do some of the kids survive they don't kill all of them because the witches oh, still just like some of them get impaled on the stairs yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um it's good i really sure. liked it they don't kill them they just leave them to starve with broken bones <laughs> it's not the same <laughs> No, I really liked the bit with Mary and the kids because it shows Mary's empathy. Well, go on then, skedaddle. You could come too. We like you, miss. Uh, well, that's very kind of you, but I'm afraid I can't. Where are you going? Well, I'm looking for answers and I have a feeling that's where to look for them. Bye, miss. Thank you. I was delighted to help. It's a good setup to Mary's continuing story. And it literally like continues the contrast between Coulter and Mary. They've had this for a long time, I feel like. And in an episode where she's like, I deliver you back to your parents and now return to my very important spiritual mission. And Mrs. Coulter is like, you're mine and I'm kidnapping you. The way, you know, like, I don't know, like, those feel opposite to me. Yeah, so I agree with you mostly. I don't think that this really negatively impacts the story. I like what it does for Mary. But at the same time, I can't help but feel like it is undermining one of Philip Pullman's points from the book. Um, Which is fine, because it wasn't a point of the book that I particularly liked. But... I think when he was writing Angelica and the gaggle of children, he was really trying to say something about how kids can also be evil. They're like just as Mm. bad as adults. And he was trying to really impress that upon Lyra. And I think that message is lost in the book or sorry, is lost in the TV show. I'm not sad about it, but I think it is worth pointing out. It is lost, but it was definitely there as a part of Lyra growing up, and I just don't think it was needed in the show because they had uh, Daphne Keene play Lyra more grown up than she was in the book. Yeah, you know, I see. like the yeah, that it was like it was character growth that wasn't needed because Lyra was already starting at like a more evolved place. Yeah, and Will talked about it, like with his mom and stuff. He says, you know, some kids yeah. suck; they they just are mean for no good reason. Which is true. Yep. Um, other bits I wanted to cover quickly, just a few shout outs to some really good acting. Uh, Andrew Scott smashed it again. Oh, uh, God, yes. Ruta Gedmintas, she's always excellent and she really did it again very, very well this time. Um, and then obviously every actor loves a death scene. Yeah. And Lin-Manuel Miranda <laughs> and yeah. Cristela Alonso both Ugh. did a fantastic job of that. I really loved how... Um, even when it's kind of all going wrong and Hester starts blaming herself for um, them being about to die. And then Lisa's like, This is my fault, isn't it? 
How do you figure? I've always stopped you before. You always pushed me. Only when there's an adventure on the way. Master. There were always adventures. Yeah, how you figure? <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he's just, he knows exactly what she means, but he's not going to let her just, you know, just say that and just have that there. He's like, no, no, come on, tell me. What do you mean? Go on. <laughs> that's that being honest with yourself. It's so, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. When she turns to despair, that's when you really get worried and you're like, oh, mm. don't, not you, Hester. Mm. No. I know. I've Hester should have taken so her own hard. advice and think about bacon. <laughs> think about bacon. That not was, anything. That was fabulous. And, but then. <laughs> Loved it. Uh, when, when Hester started getting sad, that. I hate sad Hester. I don't like that yeah. at all. Uh, and then when they talked about all the adventures they went on. Uh, I know. I want to see more of them. It's so good. And bacon was like a thing from the minute that Lee was yes. in the first episode. You know, Lyra stealing his bacon on the plate. They made bacon a theme. It's never a cheesy theme either, which is what I really like about it. It's a bacony theme. Um <laughs> <laughs> But it's it, it it's never overdone. It's never like overtly referenced in quite the same manner. It, like it's just on the edge of being cheesy, and I love that about it. I thought it's good because yeah, because yeah. Lee's a slightly cheesy character, right? Yeah. And that's kind of the joy of him. Other bits quickly. I loved I loved Mary um, just kind of wandering around using the Ching. Like even though they aren't in the books, it makes so much sense to have them here. No, it it's in the book a little bit. It's just it's in book three. Ah, uh, yes, of course. But yeah, also I just love that she has a thermos in her bag, just because <laughs> it's such a sensible thing to take with you. But also at exactly the same time, you know that shit's going to be cold because she's been there at least a day. Yeah, so, <laughs> it's just it's just something that if I were to be told okay you're gonna go on a long expedition now i'd be like i need to dig out my thermos that's gonna be really useful <laughs> two other final bits um i preferred this way of uh john parry and will meeting i just thought it oh, was yes. better in every way i liked that will was so hurt like emotionally hurt yes hurt by by john not coming back you know that's going to hurt a kid yeah and he, you know, he saw the effect it had on his mother, especially as John continues to be just like, but think of the bigger picture. And he's, he doesn't really apologize for it. No, I think it's so important that that mm. apology never happens. How did you do it? You owe me answers, Dad, not the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any idea how hard Mum found it without you? Thinking you were dead. I couldn't get back to you. I tried everything. And in trying, I got a better understanding of these strange worlds. An understanding that I could use to actually help people. And you chose these people over your family. No. I thought by helping them, I could help you. I'm talking about the end of this tyranny, Will, for you, for everyone. I've thought about you every day. But, Will, if you're the knife bearer, you have a task ahead of you. 
the fate of many worlds may rest on you. On me. There's a war coming, Will. The greatest war there ever was. You must go to Lord Asriel and tell him that you have the only weapon in all the universes that can destroy the authority, all right? No, I don't want to. I hate it. I don't want anything to do with any of this. You're the knife bearer, Will. If you don't use it against them, they'll tear it out of your hands and they'll destroy us. They'll have absolute power. I'm sorry, Will, but you must do this. You must do it. Let me go home. Lee made John promise to protect Lyra and to use, you know, the knife bearer to that end. And the book makes a big deal about how there's a betrayal of that promise. I feel like that is not really happening here to the same degree. But I do feel like there is a really big lie that happens in the middle of this that is a strong betrayal in exactly the thing that you're talking about. Yeah, I think I know you. So he, yeah, he, he asks him. He's like, and then we'll go home. And there's this whole thing that the actor does with his face. Yes. And oh, and then he's like, yeah, and then we'll go home. And you're like, you, you fucking liar. Yeah. <laughs> and that is like you their no whole intention. relationship. Oh man. I also really love that scene. I love that they didn't even try to have Will and John not recognize each other because it just wouldn't work on yeah, screen. It was so dumb in the book. Yeah, but I'm so glad it, they didn't do any of that. It does at least kind of work in a book because you don't see them physically looking at each other. You know what I mean? Although, again, the whole time it's like the alethiometer saying your father's up ahead and then he runs into a dude. Use your <laughs> right. brain, Will. But anyways. Coming up on your left, trauma. Yeah. But but that's pretty much what they did in, in the show. It's like they heard what we were saying because Will was immediately like, my father was supposed to be up here. Is that yeah. you? Is that you? <laughs> I, I really loved their interactions. They're both really good actors. Yeah. And it was great to see Definitely. their journey towards each other culminate in this one scene and how John just immediately was like, where's your mom? How's your mom? You know, and that mm. that puts you on his side just a little bit. But it also makes it not about him, you know, not yeah. about yeah. Will. Yeah, that's true. I think also Andrew Scott is just plays a troubled man very, very well. Like yeah. he plays imperfection. And yes. th- that is what John Parry is. He's he's resolved on what he wants to do and what he likes. And he's very upfront about it. It's just that those decisions kind of make him a piece of shit sometimes. <laughs> I will say his the last line that they gave him was kind of dumb. Uh, where he says the night is full yeah. of angels. It's the middle of the fucking day. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think if we would have had the episode that we're missing, that whole thing would have hit better. Well, he says it in the book too, but then, like, there are some angels there to tell Will that they will take him to Azrael, and that just doesn't in happen here. Yeah. Right in the book, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just like, mm, okay. 
from what we saw, it would be like, are you talking about the meteorites, dad? In the up in the sky, I did <laughs> yeah, see those. Yeah, yeah. Are those angels? I did think though it was a better jet, better death for John. Yeah, um, it did make more sense as we talked about earlier. It was a little bit quick, but it wasn't. It was still better than it was in the books because I really disliked it in the books. Yeah, I, I like that it was quick because the whole point of them is that they they don't get a chance to resolve their relationship. Yeah. Yes, yeah, fair. They kind of part as strangers. Yeah. Despite meeting. They're supposed to be anti-climax. Yeah. Yeah. And as I suspected, Will did put on the goofy jacket. So. <laughs> he did. <laughs> yeah. And he put up the hood and, and everything. I liked yeah. it. I liked and it. it looked so cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It looks great. That was good. I wanted to call out the music during, well, the whole episode the yeah. music was good, but specifically yes. Lord Asriel's voice over there at the end. Looking fabulous. Mm-hmm. I have gone all over the place in my notes, so I'm going to go backwards now a little bit and say that the one thing I do think that they've done right with the witches is that they are scared of the specters because that is the one thing that they can't fight and I like I like that I like that there is one thing in this world that can believably threaten the witches yeah. uh, I really loved the bit where Lee and Grumman, John are in the woods and the demon flies up overhead although that's completely world breaking why can that person's demon go so far away from them but whatever uh, but then John is just like that's not my demon <laughs> and then Lisa's like run and they go that, I, I don't know I just really loved that scene it was well done and, and then their very emotional goodbye uh, between John and Lee I thought that was very well done. And we talked about this scene earlier, but I wanted to bring up the scene where uh, Lyra and Pan are talking about how they're changing and and growing up, basically. But they have the the bit of the Jordan College theme playing in the background, but it sounds very different. Ooh, I thought that was so... That. that was such a good choice. I don't think anyone ever is. If you're going to talk about the music, you should talk about the end. Like the yes. credits. Yeah. Yes, the end yes. credits. Okay, so I genuinely think they did that on purpose because I stayed watching the end credits because I was like, oh, it's the opening credits theme, but but different and really cool. And that's why I watched to the end of the credits. I was like, oh, shit, there's a scene. Oh, my God. <laughs> is yeah, it, it does. I, it is, yes. I did not watch to the end of the credits, and I did not see the scene until you told me to go back and watch it. Yeah. So thank you. No problemo. It was really good, and we can't talk about it, obviously. But we do see Roger, who's dead, somewhere in darkness. I did notice in this episode this thing of, like, the locations that I think is super interesting, where, the like, the episode begins, we talked about this with the witches in a cave, and Lyra started the whole season in a cave and of course we have the computer that's in a cave this makes me think of plato's cave we talked about that a little bit in the book and how that sure a little bit (laughs) and how that's like a symbol for ignorance and then you kind of come out of the cave and you learn the truth and then you can never go back even if you go back into the cave you know that like oh this is all not real right 
you, like you lost your innocence, basically. They're like traveling through these slot canyons that are halfway between being outside in the open and being a cave. They're like emerging into, you know, like knowledge or something like that's how I saw the setting being used, because anytime that we're back in a cave, then it it starts to be about like ignorance again. Like um, when Mary is reading the uh, the I Ching, she's using the cave, right? The computer, you know, that's her laptop version of the cave, you know, is the I Ching. And when Serafina lies to Ruta, it's in a cave and sends her out without the full knowledge of, I'm pretty sure I know what this Asa Header thing is and I don't want you to have it. Like when Will puts on the mantle, he is fully like out of the canyon walls. He's like standing up on a hill in the light. It's like he's kind of apexed out of ignorance. You know what I mean? And Lyra getting stuffed into a box, you know, is a kind of cave thing of like, go back to being innocent, my innocent. Uh, you can't do that. You can't go back into the cave because it's too late. You've, uh, you're already changing. She's already, she knows too much. You're so nice to these people. Whenever like you go into these in-depth like they must have chosen this because of this blah blah blah. blah. Oh. I'm like or the designers just thought it looked cool. It looked cool. I mean you know, it, it like, can <laughs> You you give them way more credit than I ever give them. I don't mean to say that they did it on purpose because I definitely think this is me on my bullshit and I'm like seeing too much. It doesn't have to be them doing it on purpose for it to be real is what I mean. Before we go into our overall thoughts on season 2, I did also just want to say that yay we've been greenlit for season three well not we but you know yay! the show has been and there's gonna be eight episodes i mean covid notwithstanding although we'll probably have to wait longer for it because of covid so probably that's unfortunate yeah. but you know what can we do it's 2020 so what did we think of season two overall it's terrible Throw um it okay so alan's ridiculous notwithstanding i'm gonna go first <laughs> By saying what I think everybody will guess is like, what a huge improvement. Yeah. I, I feel like, I don't know if it was that they listened to the criticism or they just realized what they had done wrong or something that the bits that they wanted to land weren't landing with people. So they, you know, they made changes that they needed to change. But huge, huge improvement over season one. Great music, which is aside, everything was fabulous. Yeah. I think part of what made the season better was just the demon work was so much better. Yeah. Um, not in terms of like visually how the demons were executed, um, but just in terms of the role that they played in the scenes, how much character work was done through the demons. Like the demons were, we, this was our main complaint about season one was that the demons were really invisible it just made the world building not work as well as it did in the book. Yeah, it was confusing um, if you didn't know what was going on. Yeah, and they completely fixed that this season. Um, so great, great job with that. And then also, I think there's just less action going on this season. The pacing of season one, I think, was hurt a little bit by the fact that they had to fit so much into eight episodes. And I think season two just like breathed a lot more because... There weren't as many plot points that had to happen, that had to get done. You know, there were so many different sets on in season one. Jordan College, then London, then 
Bullvanger. Every episode is a different location. Spellbard. Yeah, it was like they put so much energy and money, (laughs) I'm sure, into the production side of things in season one. There was so much more going on than in this episode because the story was a bit smaller. They were able to, I think, sit back and just like approach it um in a better way yeah they also like book two is shorter than book one and they had some of book two in season one so i think that Mm -hmm. that gave them a lot of leeway to really focus like because there was a lot of character stuff added uh especially between lyra and will that like added so much to the story like you really cared about what they were going to decide to do and you could really feel lyra's you know oh i've got a new friend now let's hope i don't fuck him over (laughs) right yeah Yeah. and like (laughs) And then she kind of does fuck him over, and it it was really good. Sorry. Watching Will and Lyra's relationship grow over the course of season two was just so rewarding. And it's part of what was missing for us for Roger, because we didn't, like, the first episode is so fast, and that's all we get of Will and Roger, uh, Will and Roger, (laughs) of Lyra and Roger. Um, It doesn't feel as emotionally impactful, you know, for her to be off trying to save him. And, mm-hmm. you know, when they're reunited in Balvanger, it's sweet, but it's it very informed in a way that Will and Lyra isn't. Yeah. And honestly, I'm like not even that mad that we lost the Asriel episode. It's more true to the book. I just loved the voiceovers yeah. this episode so much. I felt like it gave me everything that I needed to know about what Asriel has been doing. Yeah. <laughs> I think that part of what you're saying, too, is a consequence of the structures of the books that like Book one is really like an adventure story and book two is a little bit more of a thriller in a way. Mm -hmm. There's just more room to explore stuff, like literally. Yeah, I also think maybe the production team realized that you don't need an adventure for it to be interesting because they they fucked up the adventure a little bit, you know? I mean, partially they just spent their budget, right? They didn't dump it all into a part of the book, which actually wasn't that impressive. They drove away from the mistakes of the Golden Compass movie and focused on the things which actually matter to us, you know, to us as the kind of reviewers here, to the general public, from what I heard from talking to people, and just to the book. The demons are so much more important, and giving them enough effort and enough time really, really paid off. And also, they just didn't need to introduce the whole world and all the characters this time. Which gave them an easier job as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they smashed yeah. It. that's a good point. It was yeah. brilliant. I I saw when I was watching the finale a lot of parallels between the season one finale and season two finale, like in terms of their structure. In the finale of the first season, Mrs. Coulter comes into the science cabin, and like you know, this is where Lyra was sleeping, and then she does that in this one too, and uh, and then she goes and tracks her down out in the wilderness the same way, you know, as in the season one finale. The I think the reason that you do parallel structure in terms of writing and storytelling and stuff like that is to like invite comparison. And so you can kind of show the themes that are happening, but also like the way that things have changed. And so that, you know, tells you about the growth of the characters. Like Lyra confronting Asriel on the mountaintop versus like Will confronting his father, you know, like that's very parallel. And the magisterium attacking lee and hester is just like when the magisterium attacks the bears and the bears stay there and you know fight off the magisterium so that lyra has the cover 
to climb the mountain without getting overtaken mm. by those forces. Just in the story beats, there's a lot of parallel structure going on. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. So overall, two thumbs up for um, season two. At least two. So yeah, I think we're going to move on to our spoiler section, but you know we're going to take a bit of a break, and mostly because Caitlin has other podcasts she has to do, and then we will be back for The Amber Spyglass, the book. Okay, well, if you'd like to avoid spoilers, then now is the time to say goodbye. Otherwise, stick around after the end outro. Um, we are going to take a nice long break, but at some point before season three airs, we will be back in order to talk about book three, The Amber Spyglass. Um, so keep us in your feeds for that. If you've enjoyed our coverage of season two, please take the time to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, send your emails to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And now, the spoilers. Dun, dun, dun. Everyone special! So, before we get into everything else, the Eve thing, the Eve and the End of Destiny, I've always thought were two completely different things. So, she's Eve, like, so the End of Destiny is, is her and Will going into the world of the dead. And opening up a way for them to get out. Right. Yes. Okay. I definitely got that. And the and Eve is when she and Will fix the dust problem. Oh. <laughs> Just get get out the uh, vacuum cleaner. Yes. Run it around a bit. <laughs> fix the dust problem. Because that's... End of sin. <laughs> exactly. How do they fix... They fix the dust problem by closing all the windows well, and they, not cutting but anymore. But before they close the windows... Um, when they go off on their looking for the demons, but actually they, you know, they're like, yeah, we love each other. Let's make out. That's when I I actually was thinking about that as I was rewatching today. And I was like, <laughs> I love Daphne Keene. I love Amir Wilson. I love the way they portray the friend portray. I don't want to see him kiss. I'm not sure if I want to see them make out in a forest. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes, I guess. I'm. I don't. I don't. That was di- Caitlin disagreeing with you. No, I don't. I don't think I disagree either. But I think it's just because they're so young. Yeah, I was gonna say. Are, I think yeah. this is just a consequence of you being an adult. Is yeah. like maybe maybe yeah. it's good that that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. But a they they will be older when they film season three, so they have that going for them. Again, it's like the end of Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yes. Where, like, Arya suddenly has a sex scene. You're like, what the fuck? (laughs) She's like 10, but she's like 10 when they did the first season, and she's actually grown up quite a bit since then, but it's just, you see her as this child character. And so you're like, no, 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 no. So since I'm older than all of you, it's like, there's, I think there's a, it's not like the actor's age. It's just like, as you get older, you're like, oh, these people are so much younger than me. And this is a little, like, I'm used to being kind of switched on by these kind of scenes. But now these are like kids and it's gross. It's like, just get used <laughs> to that because it's going to happen more the older you get. Ugh, oh, no. oh, no. Sorry. I'm not but like, like fucking reality, you know? 
Watch movies about Most... old people making out. I don't know what to tell you. I'm fine. Genuinely, I'm fine. You know, and actually, now that we're framing it this way, I'm totally fine with Roger being, like, a way older if Daphne Keen and Amir Wilson also appear older. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. but anyways, the scene where she literally offers him fruit, and then they make out, and then they... Right. And afterwards, the dust in the air is attracted to them and it's coming down more instead of floating away into the windows. That's the scene where she has Eve's quote unquote fall because that means that they're attracting knowledge and and everything to the people. But it's because of them because the dust is attracted to the two of them, attracted to the two of them. So they attract way more dust than regular people who have sex. Well, I don't well, think they about... have sex in the sh- in the book. But... Well, no, no. I, but I mean, like... But yes, that's what's happening. In terms of the fall. There's something yeah. about the two of them that Dust is more attracted to. And so even if the windows hadn't been closed, a good portion of the problem would have been fixed. Okay, see, I think I missed that on my read through the Amber Spyglass. So thank you for pointing that out. I mean... For when we reread yes. it. And, and when I said people having... Regular people having sex, I don't mean that, like... They have had sex, but there are many people in existence who have had sex, right. and so why would they not I s- attract dust in the same way? <laughs> Sorry, I specifically said Maybe what I do. said because a lot of people think Will and Lyra do have sex at the end of the Amber Spyglass, and I disagree. Oh. So that's why I said that, but we'll get there. Let's talk about the end of the Amber Spyglass when we get there. Uh- <laughs> okay. <laughs> After we've started the Amber Spyglass, which yeah. is not now. <laughs> yes. Um, at least we've we've gone hard into the spoiler. Yes. Really spoiler oh yeah. Section. We do announce it. It's fine. So I I also just want to say that I loved I loved getting that glimpse of Roger in the world of the dead and how yeah they did the those bits. Uh, so good. Mm. I'm really really excited for for season three. It's gonna be wicked. I really think so. Yeah. And I, a scene that I wanted to talk about in the main, but I, I couldn't really talk about it without getting into spoilers. I just want the scene where Will and Lyra are talking about how they just called each other their best friends. Like they acknowledge that conversation they had at night. I really just think that shouldn't have happened. Why not? Because in the books, they don't talk about it until that, that scene that we were just talking about at the very end oh, of the Amber Spyglass. The one where they yeah. don't have yeah. sex in the woods. Yes, exactly. And they- <laughs> The defining moment of that scene is that they don't have sex. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Different kind of anticlimax. Yeah. So, um. <laughs> Jesus. And I... <laughs> So I I liked in the books where they sort of both acknowledged what they were feeling, but they didn't talk about it at all until much, much later. And I loved the scene in the show. It was a good scene. It was well done. I just think it it changes the impact of that nighttime talk that Will and Pan had. That's all. And I just wanted to bring it up. Hmm. That's interesting. I'm going to use nighttime talk as a euphemism for now. (laughs) Yes, I was going to (laughs) say. I really liked the the Azriel voiceover. It shows how much that he thinks he matters and how he kind of does matter, but not in the same way that he thinks. Yeah. Cuz I guess correct me if I'm wrong, but do we see Azriel getting the two angels on board and sending them after Will and Lyra? 
in the book, or do the angels just show up? So the so Balthazar and the other one, fuck, I don't remember his name, the angels that end up traveling with Will. When I hear the word Balthazar, all I can think of is like that giant, disgusting tub demon from Buffy. Yeah, that's um, fair. But please go <laughs> but on. Not, not him. An angel. Yeah, not him. Um. Uh. So w- they show up to guide Will to Azriel in order to impress Azriel. It's something that they thought of doing on their own to show that they're important and to do a big help for Azriel. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. So, so the TV show gives the impression that, like, Azriel is being very important for, like, getting the angels on board. The angels are going to be really crucial to helping Will and Lyra in book three. So, like, Azriel is important, but as more of a helper and facilitator, as opposed to in the book, it really seems like what he's doing does not matter at all. (laughs) Well, I mean, we can talk about more of whether or not what Azrael is doing matters. It matters in some ways. Like, it matters in that they realize it's not going to work. This this is like the whole, I mean, you you mentioned like uh, uh, Aragorn earlier, Francis. It's like, it's like how what Mm. Aragorn is doing is important but not important at all like yeah. you know like it's distracting yeah. the correct people who need to be distracted so that the real heroes can get the job done you know i see so yeah. will and lyra are frodo and samwise yeah, and yeah. well yeah now it's weird. Aragorn, <laughs> who no. don't have sex yes yeah 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 no it all lines up uh, so yeah kind of i mean we're gonna read this book it's all yeah, things that exactly. we're gonna we talk about we don't need to break down <laughs> sorry I'm probably just dragging this conversation down because I've only read uh, The Amber Spyglass once that I remember, but I'm excited to revisit it with you guys. Me too. It's been a while since I cried at the ending, so, you know, it'll be a good time. (laughs) Um, Just like a quick aside that I'm really excited to see Lee and John in the world of the dead, but I'm so sad that we never get to see Hester again and that she's she's gone for good. Maybe they will make a different decision on that. Uh, they better not, because that changes Whoa, everything that would, about the plot. Yeah, that would be a huge mm-hmm. change. Do you think they're going to do with Lee's body what happens like on have screen? Have Yorick eat we, him? Yeah, are we going to do that? Is he going to have a leather yeah. burger? Uh, be I don't... like, I want bacon with this for my friend? <laughs> oh, Look, oh, I don't think so. Not because... It would be uh, a graphically violent on screen, but just because the geography of how the world pass through thingy works and where physically Lee is is completely different than it was in the book. So okay. Yorick just would not easily be able to get to him. One of the things I really like about the whole story is that, like Sarah, he does the thing. Philip Pullman does the thing that happens in fantasy, where it's like. At the beginning of the story, you give somebody like, here's your get out of free jail free card. And then like they pull that card at the crucial moment and then deus ex machina happens and they they're good. And that doesn't happen for Lee. She shows up just in time to not be useful. And um, yeah, which is great. Um, But she's like when she's there, she's like preserve this vessel. She's like casting a spell on him. And I was like, oh, yeah, so that Yorick doesn't have to eat rotted meat, right? That's why we're doing that? Like, <laughs> trying to figure out what the point is. I mean, she could carry him back through. Yeah, if they do that, that might happen. 
I, I was thinking that, that she might carry him to York and be like, yo, your friend's dead. You want to eat him? <laughs> or would she be surprised or be like thank you for giving my friend <laughs> like what are you doing <laughs> like, oh my god Jesus she... Christ Yorick <laughs> I know I didn't have time to get the bacon he would have liked that but... I don't think she'd be surprised because they're both creatures of the north you know like I yeah, think they probably, probably have a better understanding of each other's culture than the humans do um, yeah. she's just looking at Lee just like mmm he looks Tasty. <laughs> She's like, I wish I could do that. No. Uh, we get okay. into the ethics of cannibalism. Good. No. Is it cannibalism? Are the witches human? Uh, I would say no. Not cannibalism. Yeah. Definitely weird, though. Would it matter okay? for the prion disease? <laughs> mm. uh, oh, yeah. Would it matter for the Kuru? <laughs> it would really depend on the alleles they have at that locus. Because actually, I mean, heterozygote humans are protected from Kuru, so okay. I don't know if w- witches are fixed for one form or the other. Yeah, that's like the whole Hardy Weinberg Texas Kuru thing. <laughs> <sighs> no, because if you look in cultures that traditionally engaged in ritual cannibalism, have like, like Texas. 50- <laughs> like Texas, yeah. No, um, there's some, I think they're Pacific Island or I don't know. Anyway, they yeah. are specifically like 50, 50% for each form of the allele. And if you measure among older adults, heterozygotes are actually overrepresented for what you would expect. They're like mm. over 50%. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So that is one of, it's one of the examples we used to teach for like, seeing things being out of Hardy Weinberg and inferring selection from that. This was not on my bingo card of like, Anya knows lots about cannibalism. (laughs) No, because I used to teach this. Anyway, yeah. But if you look at most cultures that did not engage in cannibalism, they have, I forget which form, but like one form of the allele comes to dominate and just through like genetic drift. But I am very curious if a BBC show is going to be like, if it will be implied eating, if it will be on screen eating, or if it will be no eating. I'm interested what I love in where about they go. this is that I'm sure Lee Manuel Miranda would be so fucking excited to have a bear eat him. Super excited. <laughs> he would want it to happen. Fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He'll be pushing for it. Yeah, exactly. Even if he if he wasn't then, by the time he's listened to this podcast, he would. <laughs> yep. <laughs> One so Something that they kind of cut out of the show was um, John dying, like like being near death before all that happened. He was sick, and they kind of right, 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 yes, and weak and stuff. And so I always I interpreted that like if they wanted to hint toward it at all, because they do have to, um, as him realizing that he's he's not living long because of the the sickness that you get from living in another world. So I've been wondering about this, if they're just going to get rid of that. Then why wouldn't Lyra go live in Will's world at the end? Right. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, okay, so this gets back to the whole thing that Anya was saying about like shot in the ankle. And now it's not a choice anymore. You have, you have to do it. Like if you're signing up to die by hanging out in someone else's world, that's not really a choice. You know, like, I guess you could do that. And it would be tragic and bad. But like if if you could 
live in each other's world and have a whole life. But then then it is a choice to do that or not. You know what I mean? No, I do. But what's the point of having Lyra make that choice? I get that Will has to go back to his world because his mom needs somebody to take care of him or mm-hmm. uh, take care of her. You know, and, and that is a very big part of Will's character that he, he loves his mom a lot and he wants to take care of her. Lyra's got shit all holding her to her world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if they take that out, there is no fucking reason why she wouldn't just choose to spend the rest of her life with Will. Become a housewife to Will. Uh, I, well, she would never do that. I know. So, I'm just saying it in the most <laughs> worst way I can. No, I think that Lyra would want to go and stay in Will Worlds anyway, just so she could become a scholar. Mm, Or does she have to go back to make scholarship possible or dismantle the magisterium or, you know? She's never cared about that, yeah. She doesn't need to do any more labor. They've done a really good job of, like, integrating the world building, you know, from, like, the beginning. Yeah. And but we haven't seen this element of it, and so it makes me wonder if it is an element anymore. And so if it's not, like there are implications for how that could change, you know, this the story. Yeah. the th- The thing is, if they have that not be a thing, and Lyra just chooses to go back to her world, I will fucking hate that. <laughs> just a warning, Bad Wolf. <laughs> but it would be like because it. D- it's literally like she could go somewhere where she could study and do anything she wanted and and be with Will. Like the very last line in the book is you have to build it where you are. You know, you have to build your own good life where you are. And why would she choose to have a shit life? All right, let's let's wrap this up. We've we've blathered on about stuff we're going to get to later. Long enough. So, thank you everyone for sticking with us through all of our blatherings through season two we will be back for the amber spyglass and don't forget to steal the mantle off your dead father's body i was watching this show (laughs) called his dark materials and i was like wow the sound is really good and i turned it way up sounds good we should watch that yeah we should do a show about that one when we're done this yeah definitely everybody wants to make (laughs) podcasts it's the worst at least we actually do it rather than just saying, hmm, man, I wish we could make a podcast. <laughs> we should really do that. That'd be a great I idea. I should I should actually have that a little more often, That where I just sort of think about it and then don't do it. And then don't do it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd make my life a little bit easier. Everybody went? Yeah. Yep. Great. That that was quicker. That was quick for us. Anyways, I know mm. we're like uh, <laughs> basically it's six minutes. Yeah, incredible. Six minutes in, two minutes of fucking good. around, and we've already done the favorite parts. There's yeah, nothing yeah. to talk about when so. it's good. Because yeah. she, that's where she lives. Is like that edge. that edge. Yeah, she's. I made it bad there. I didn't mean to, but like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I will just. So that was just Anya's favorite part. I know, right? Yeah, so we, so now we, it. we did general really feelings cool in six minutes, and then we spent over ten minutes talking about my favorite part. So yeah. you're welcome. About how we, do. about how we joked about um, killing <clears throat> Philip Pullman with COVID. Yeah, specifically <clears throat> Francis giving yeah. Philip Pullman COVID. 
It's like, how the fuck did we get there? That was... It's terrible. Yeah. It's a wild ride here. Yeah. (laughs) We are. (laughs) This is why we don't have any sponsors. (laughs) Well, I feel like... I just want to say that the death toll was much smaller at that point when we recorded. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It was humor to deal with our... We were all very anxious. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, him getting shot in the ankle is clearly making him into Achilles, which is uh, a reference to... No, no, that's real. That's not. That's not true. That's, okay. I can't do that. I'm sorry. Especially, I'm the animal. Okay. Yeah. Also, yeah. why were they in a volcano? I don't, where did that come yeah, from? I I don't even care about that. You know, it was kind of visually interesting. Sometimes you just make a yeah. visually interesting decision in on screen. That's weird. fine with me. But the whole scene is useless, stupid, and wrong. <laughs> it God, was remind also... me never to upset you, Caitlin. <laughs> it was also. I like that this whole page is Alan's color. Oh, no. Like my whole screen is red right now. I'm sorry. It's just me <laughs> writing my shit out. It was really good. Oh. Uh... Why didn't she see Terrence Stamp's corpse up there and be like, who's this guy? What's going on here? Because they couldn't afford Terrence Stamp. That's why. For two episodes. <laughs> um, that yeah, sounds I hope like everybody a religion. Gets that. Hold on. I got chocolate in my mouth. <laughs> Never mind. I've ruined it. Carry on. I was going to say, Walt I could Disney's like... religion. Yeah. I constantly bring the Star Wars bullshit into it, but it's like, you know, like Darth Vader is more fun when he is not like sad Vader, you know, like, <laughs> and like Mrs. Coulter is a little Vader. sad Vader in the TV oh, show. Oh yeah, my favorite Darth Vader oh. scene is in Rogue One where he just plows everyone down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like That's I will, as... I will look that scene up on YouTube sometimes and just be like, oh yes, <laughs> give me that good lightsaber <laughs> death. <laughs> That's the one Star Wars movie that I haven't seen. It genuinely might be my favorite. I've heard it's it's the best one. I know. Yeah. That's interesting because I know a lot of people hate it. But. Oh, huh. They're wrong. Yeah. I love when you go into the ending. I remember the very first time we're in theaters and they're all like going down to that planet at the end. And I thought to myself, God, I hope they all die. And. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. You know, I hope I, I literally thought I hope they all go out doing this. And then they did, and it was fucking fabulous. <laughs> There's nothing better than killing off your entire fucking cast. Yeah. <laughs> Caitlin's like, that's my favorite part of the book when they all die. <laughs> I think we like talked Batman about heroism. That is not my favorite part of the book, but um <laughs> And then yeah, and Lee needed a friend. Yeah. Yeah. Who left him in the woods to die? Yeah. And <laughs> because he asked him to. It's fine. <laughs> Before you do that, can I talk okay. about one more specific thing in this? No. And then we'll... Get off my okay. podcast. Okay. okay. I'm sorry, you guys. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, I won't, of course. I'll be quiet now. But if, like a like a golden monkey, I will be silent. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. What, what, what do you want? What are you talking? No, still um, making her feel like Coulter. No, no, no. Oh no! Uh, Keep making me feel. Like yeah, just do that. Please, do that. 
<laughs> Death of the author. Kill all the authors. Kill the authors. Yep. <laughs> we, we also talked about that in our book episode on this section. <laughs> anyway, that yes, was... We did. That was um, my specific thing to this episode. Yeah. I was thinking... You know, I, I was speaking... I was specifically thinking be- of uh, the the uh, what is it called the fucking tesseract story. Um, oh yeah, uh, yeah, uh, um, yeah. Where she becomes a housewife to. Her, to yeah. It's not I the mean, wind in the willows. Why is that in my head? That's not what it is. Anyway, sorry. Uh, wrinkle in time. Yes. Wrinkle in time. Good. Thank you. That was bothering the fuck out of me. <laughs> the repository of knowledge, as always. Uh, <laughs> 